0: If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Paul's letter to the Galatians. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Join with me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, help us to not only be informed, but also transformed by your word, so that both individually as Christians and corporately as a church, we would increasingly reflect the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to to travel to the most heavily armed and defended border between two countries in all of the world. That would be the border between the Republic of Korea and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. I had crossed through a narrow strip of land ironically called the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. And I was at that village of Panmunjom and I was at the blue building and I walked around the table between two countries and, and and even though soldiers from both sides looked and stared at each other, it was clear that there was a ceasefire, there was a stalemate. There was, there was a truce, as it were. Heavily armed and defended, but actually no hostility. Now that is a very bad it is not a good illustration of the Christian life because the Christian life is both peace and war peace with God as we've said before it leads believe it or not to war War with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's why when I'm with a new believer who's come to faith in Christ, they're like, why is this stuff bothering me now? It never used to bother me. It's because being at peace with God, they are now at war with the world system, the, the, the flesh, their own sinful nature, the, the habits, and of course, the great enemy of God. It's a war that has been won. There is the already of the Christian life, but the war that continues to need to be fought, the not yet of the Christian life. We said a few weeks ago, in chapter 13 of the Confession of Faith of Sanctification, it describes the Christian life as a continual and irreconcilable war. Three weeks ago, in verses Uh, 16 through 18 of chapter 5 in Galatians, we looked at the Christian conflict and we saw the command to walk, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit and the confidence that we had in this conflict. And we made note that the battle is fought not out there in the culture around us as much as it's fought in here in our own hearts um, as what we were according to the natural birth of. Battles what we have become by the new birth. And two weeks ago, when I was last here, we looked at just another to do and not to do list where we saw the, the works of the flesh and a warning that went with them versus the fruit of the spirit and an encouragement that went with them. We saw the vices and the virtues, and we saw in particular that the virtues all led to none other than Jesus Christ, the only one who has truly borne the fruit of the Spirit, the unity of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Only Jesus. Well, today, in verses 24 through 26, after we've examined the combatants, flesh and spirit, Paul is going to give us more instruction on how to fight how to fight. Here we are at week number 21 in our series. Remember the gospel is under threat. There's a clear and present danger to the church in Galatia. Paul who established the church is following up and he's pastoring the church. He's writing a letter and that letter remember is six chapters with a basic outline of autobiography, Paul's personal defense of his gospel ministry, followed by theology, Paul's theological defense of the gospel message and ethics. The last two chapters, Paul's practical application of the gospel message to the lives of his readers. Now remember, why is or how is the gospel under threat? Because the false teachers in and around the church were saying that faith in Christ is necessary. But they were also saying faith in Christ is not enough. And that, my friends, was a danger, a threat to the gospel. And so Paul poured his energy, his effort, into making the gospel clear. Beginning in chapter 5, we see that move from theological exposition to practical theological application. If you had to sum up the theme of Galatians, it would be found in chapter 2, verse 16, where three times... Paul articulates and shouts out the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. And that doctrine, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, leads to something. It leads to freedom. And it, Paul goes on and beginning to talk about freedom, to talk about what counts, faith working through love. Faith energizes love which is at its heart self-giving and love is operating in this arena of freedom to which we have been called. In the first 12 verses of chapter 5 Paul says don't lose gospel freedom by falling back into legalism and works righteousness. And in verses 13 and 15 he says don't abuse gospel freedom by running ahead into license because you are now free to serve. Paul wants us to be reminded that Jesus really does set us free. And the Holy Spirit keeps us free so that liberty does not fall back into slavery or lean forward into license. The Holy Spirit enables Christian liberty to get out and stay, get out of the ditch and stay on the road of love, not fall off the road and into the ditch of legalism on one side or license on the other. We have been reminded in these verses that the Christian has been freed from the curse of the sin and the condemnation of the law and thus is now at liberty. At liberty to serve through love by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a call to freedom. Again, we see it in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And in this freedom that we are called, we are also called to take action, to keep company, and to love people. And so we'll explore our text for the next few minutes using a three-part outline for these three verses. And again, the, uh, the bulletin went to print before the outline came to mind. It's real simple. The action we take, the company we keep, and the people we love. And each of those is associated with the verse. The action we take, the company we keep, and the people we love. Join with me as I read verses 24 through 26. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh With its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Verse 24, the action we are called to take. I want us to notice, first of all, who we are. It's a question of identity. Notice, And those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those are the people who have been called by the grace of Christ. And Paul made that clear all the way back in chapter 1, verse 6. To those who have been called by the grace of Christ. Those who belong to Jesus. Did you all realize that we just sang together a children's hymn? Did you all? I don't think we've ever sung that here before. But you know what? We're all children. Some of us are just older children, right? I belong to Jesus. We sang, I am not my own. We sang, he is Lord and King. It's a question of identity. This is who you are. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. It's the dynamic of the Christian life. Become who and what you already have been declared to be. I belong to Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus. Now, that's the who. What's the what? The action to take or the action that has been taken. Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here, we are active, not passive. If you turn back to chapter 2, verse 20... Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified. Here, it's us who is taking the action. It's not done to us, as chapter 2 verse 20 says, but it's done by us. Remember in Mark's gospel, the call Jesus made? If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. They didn't know it yet, but that cross, Jesus would be speaking of his own death, but also, as it were, the ongoing death of those who follow him. A vivid picture. A cross. I want us to think for a moment about crucifixion. Uh, This might just roll right past us. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Why not subdued the flesh? Why not even killed the flesh? Why not even put the flesh to death? Why would Paul use the word crucified? Paul is saying this is the means of execution of the sinful nature. And I want us to examine very briefly four aspects of crucifixion. First, it's shameful. What was the cross for? Hardened criminals, traitors, murderers. And what did you do for a hardened criminal, traitor, and murderer? No mercy. No pity. It was shameful. It was also painful. We know the pain or we know of the pain. We read of the pain of the death of Jesus on the cross. But anyone would know that a Roman crucifixion was an excruciatingly painful way to die. And I'm reminded myself as I was thinking through this of question 53 in the children's catechism or the, the, the first catechism. And ask this question, what kind of death did Jesus die? And you know what the answer is? The painful and shameful death of the cross. Our children's catechism gets it right. It's a painful death. It's a shameful death. But a crucifixion is also gradual. It's gradual. There are no shortcuts. It's only a long, slow, painful death. Once a person was was fixed to the cross, they were left there to die, slowly but surely. And indeed, it's not only shameful, painful, gradual, but it really is decisive. It is final. It's not a matter of if the one hanged on a cross is going to die. It's when they are going to die. To die. And Paul is using this image in the fight against sin. In the fight against the flesh. Crucify the flesh, Paul says. Do not, he is saying, administer first aid to the flesh. Just as the criminal, just as the traitor, just as the murderer was left to die. That's what Paul is saying for us, leave it alone, let it die. If you take it into context of the entire letter, the sinful nature of the flesh that Paul is referring to is the heart that is afraid to trust God. It is the heart that is afraid to receive charity and grace. It's got to do something. That flesh has got to do something. The means to identify and dismantle The idols is what Paul is talking about. Put an end to the attractive and ruling power of idols have in our lives and thus destroy their ability to agitate and inflame our thoughts and desires. And our thoughts and our desires go in one of two directions. To be our own Lord or to be our own Savior. Paul is addressing not so much behavioral matters, although that is true, but rather motivational matters matters those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires yes being identified with Christ in his death has put a decisive blow to our sinful nature but as you know it's a fight to the finish Paul is going to now move from death as it were to life from a call to put to death To a call to bring to life. And so here we are at verse 25. The company we keep. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I want us to notice first of all, again, who we are. It's a question of identity. It's those who live by the Spirit. Earlier, it was those who belonged to Christ. Here, it's those who live by the Spirit. Now, let's remind ourselves about the Spirit. If you look just at Galatians, God sends His Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 6. He supplies His Spirit, verses verse 5 of chapter 3. And what do we do? We receive the Spirit. And we see that all through chapter 3, verses 2 and verses 14. Christians are people who have received the Spirit. And we heard again from the Old Testament lesson, Ezekiel 36. God gives not only a new spirit, but He gives His Spirit. My Spirit I will put into you, we read. And because of who we are, people who live by the Spirit, this is what we do. We walk by the Spirit. The Spirit leads but we walk, and now we walk. Um, I want you to look back up to verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And back down to verse 25. Let us also walk by the Spirit. It looks the same, doesn't it? Well, it's not the same. Two words, both translated walk, but very different. It's walk and then it's walk. And here, the word that's translated walk in verse 25 is a word primarily used in the military. It has to do with soldiers keeping in line, soldiers keeping in step. In fact, the New International Version translates it. That keep in, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's an idea of a march in formation, a, a, a run in formation, a cadence is called. And the only thing we need to do, the only thing is listen to the cadence and keep in step. Now some of you may have been in the military, others of you may have been in athletic teams where you might be rowing together or somebody is biking together and you're calling out a cadence. You don't have to know where you're going You don't have to worry about how fast you're going. All you need to do is listen and keep in step with the cadence, as it were, that is called. And so the first aspect of the company we keep is the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have received. We are not alone. The company we keep? It's the Holy Spirit. But it's more than that because I think this leads us to see that we walk together. Remember from Ephesians, we we did a sermon um, on maintaining the status quo from Ephesians chapter 4. And it was about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Not not, uh, creating the unity, not breaking the unity, but maintaining the unity. And here, because there's one Spirit and the Christian has received the Spirit, there's a unity in the Spirit. Because the Christian life is lived in community with other believers, with those who also have the Holy Spirit. We walk, we run together, we stay in formation, we listen for the cadence call. There's no pushing, there's no shoving. We're walking together. We're running together. We're marching together. I don't know if you all have been in that, but it really is a great environment to keep you from quitting. Why? Because you've got brothers and sisters all around you headed in the same direction, listening to the same call. And you know what happens when somebody starts to fall out of formation? You know what happens? people are already designated to circle back around and help out my friends an isolated christian there is it, that those two words should not be together an isolated christian we walk together we run together we live together and as we'll see in a moment god provides what we need to walk, to run, to live together. So in verses 24 and 25, we have a summary of sanctification, the dynamic of the Christian life. We have mortification, putting the sinful nature to death. And again, Paul is using the illustration of a crucifixion. And vivification, the coming to life of the new nature as empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this dynamic of the Christian life is on the basis of union with Christ. And we work out our salvation through mortification and vivification. We reject one path and we follow another. We turn from evil, we follow God. Calvin said it simply and he said it best. The death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. The death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. And you could flip it around as well. The life of the Spirit is the death of the flesh. The life of the Spirit is the death of the flesh. The Holy Spirit rarely works in extraordinary ways, usually through the ordinary means of grace. The Word preached and read, the the sacraments observed, prayer together as a church. Do we want to see the Holy Spirit at work? In bringing things to life, we'll then look for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's where the Holy Spirit is at work. Well, now Paul will bring us back, as it were, to a practical outworking where the rubber meets the road and the rubber meets the road in relationships with one another because chap verse 26 the people we are called to love there's a war that's going on inside of us and at times that war comes outside of us because the works of the flesh destroy fellowship and relationships what keeps you up at night the most Is it finances? Is it the future of our country? Is it uh, the potholes on the roads around here now? Like, do I have to really drive on that road again tomorrow? I bet what keeps you up at night is problems with relationships. My friends, as I'm out and about I run into people who are incredibly bitter. Bitter at friends. Bitter at families, members. It's amazing. All of a sudden, a family that you know of that seems all good, now all of a sudden parents and adult children aren't talking. What? You want to trace every problem with the church? It's not generally the building. It's relationships within the building. Paul is moving from the war inside of us to the war outside of us. And you've heard of the one another's of scripture? Yes, well here are a couple of do not one another's. Do not one another's. Now, here again we're confronted with our identity. And here what we believe about ourselves determines our conduct Toward others. What we believe about ourselves determines our conduct toward others. Look at how verse 26 starts. Let us not become conceited. Do not become overly self important, prideful, vain, smug, snobbish, arrogant. Conceit reflects deep insecurity. Because conceit means that you've got a need to prove your worth to yourself and to others. And we see here that conceit leads to provocation and envy. And they are two actions coming from conceit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, what does provoking mean? Well, it means at its heart to challenge someone. To stand up and challenge someone. And here, the person's conceit is one of a sense of superiority. We are so confident and so sure that we are superior to someone, we just want to demonstrate it. And on the other hand, envying, at its heart, a jealousy, is not a sense of superiority, but rather a sense of inferiority. We are so sure in our conceit, we are so sure that we are inferior, that we are jealous of someone else. We both look down at people, and we look up to people. Here we both see the the outward and the invisible provoking. We also see the inward and invisible envy. Paul has got us hemmed in. Because Paul has been proclaiming the gospel and the gospel creates a change. First of all in you and then in the world around you. Because the gospel creates a new identity. It changes who you are. Who you are. And you, the new you, no longer have a need to compare yourself to others. I'm better than someone. I'm worse than someone. How we view ourselves is determined by our understanding of the gospel. Let me ask this question. I've talked about it before. But who are you? Who are you? Who am I? Because the gospel, believing the gospel, the good news that Jesus lived the life that we should live, and he died the sacrificial death for the rebellious life that we did, doing that in our place, on our behalf, that fundamentally changes who we are. We no longer have to pick a fight. We no longer have to put down someone else. Why? Because we're saved not by what we do. We're saved by Jesus And he changes us to the degree that we are functionally earning our worth through our performance. Either operating out of I'm superior or I'm inferior. Because if we are saved by works we will either be confident but not humble when we feel superior. And when we feel inferior we will sort of be humble but not confident. Only the gospel makes us neither self-confident nor self-disdaining, but rather bold and humble. John Stott, in his commentary of this passage, says this. Truly, Christian relationships are not governed by rivalry, but by service. The correct attitude toward other people is not, I'm better than you, and I'll prove it. Nor, you're better than I, and I resent it. But rather, you are a person of importance in your own right, because God made you in His own image, and Christ died for you. And it is my joy and privilege to serve you. Do you see how, once again, Paul brings things to a very practical matter? In this putting to death and bringing to life, crucifying the flesh, living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, what is happening? We are able to love people. We are able to truly Work our faith out through love. As we read in Romans, what love is the sum of the law? Putting the flesh to death, living by, walking by the Spirit, bringing the new life, as it were, to life, is that dynamic of the Christian life that enables us to love. My friends, look around here. We're all, except for me, sitting in a pew, right? We're all equal in the eyes of the Lord. Yes, some of us have different gifts, abilities, and we use them to God's glory. But God places us in a church to help one another because none of us is omnicompetent, none of us has all the gifts and graces. We need one another. And we need to serve one another. Paul gets very practical. Do not provoke, do not envy. Let's end by asking a question, making a statement, and asking another question Are you dying to live? Are you dying to live? Are you putting sin to death? And are you pursuing holiness, that which is good and true and beautiful? It's a question I need to ask myself every day. Am I dying to live? The next is a statement. There is someone who died... In your place and on your behalf so that you could live. My friends, the only way we are able to die to live is because someone has died for us in our place. And so the last question is this. Are you trusting in Him? Are you manifesting the fruit of the Spirit or... Are you trusting in yourself, doing the works of the flesh that are an attempt to prove that you are better than someone or, sadly, to prove that you are worse than someone? My friends, in the race we're running, we're all listening to the same cadence call. And we are called today and every day to keep in step with the Spirit as we are all dying to live. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word, Your Word, Your living Word that is living and active. And Father, we, in hearing Your Word, we acknowledge that we we're so wicked and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. And yet, Father, we also acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, Father, those who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before him as he headed to his cross. Jesus took the curse that that, that we deserve so that we could receive the blessing that he deserved. Oh, Father, what an amazing exchange. May your word that we have just heard take up residence in our life and change us from the inside out more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our crucified and and saving substitute and risen and reigning Lord. Oh, Father, we pray all of this for your glory and for the good of your people here now and forever. Amen.